James chapter 5. Let's turn in our Bibles together to James chapter 5. This morning, we're going to be studying verses 7 through 12 as we have two weeks left in this sermon series. Here's something that I think this text is going to show us this morning. We can face difficulties in our lives when we have hope for a better future. Let me put it another way. What you believe about tomorrow will dramatically impact how you live today. Let me illustrate that in a few different ways. You can get through a really difficult, stressful week at work when you know vacation is next week. Sometimes the week before vacation is better than vacation itself because you have that to look forward to. You have that anticipation. You ladies who have given birth to children, it's a lot easier to endure nine months of pregnancy and then difficult labor when you look forward to that moment of joy when a new baby comes into this world. Any of you guys runners, you like to run marathons or anything like that. Uh, so there's something about knowing that you're on the last lap, knowing that you're in the last mile that gives you this second win, knowing that it's almost over, that empowers you to be able to finish the race well. In the same way, what James is going to show us in this text this morning is that we can patiently endure suffering in our lives, standing firm in our faith, remaining steadfast in the Lord because of of the hope that we have in Christ, because we know that one day Jesus is going to come again and he's going to make all things new and he's going to make every wrong right again. That is the hope that we have in Christ and that will empower us to live well today. So here's the main point of this text this morning. Christians should endure suffering with patience because Jesus is coming soon. So let's take a look at this text together. James chapter five, verses seven to 12. The word of God says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Let's open with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you this morning that you have brought us into this place. 
We thank you that you have given us your word, Lord, so that it might teach us how we are to live before you. So Father, I pray that even now your Holy Spirit would open up our eyes to behold wondrous things out of your word. Lord, that you would teach us from this text how we can endure the trials in our lives and remain steadfast in our faith with hope because of Jesus. Strengthen us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So last week, we saw in the first six verses of James chapter five, James's condemnation of the wealthy for the way that they abused their wealth and for the way that they mistreated the poor. So if we could put it one way, last week, James addressed the oppressor. And now this week, James is shifting gears and he is addressing the oppressed. Now he's addressing the poor persecuted, suffering believers in the church. And notice how last week the tone was fiery words of condemnation. And the tone this week is encouragement for those who are suffering. It is seeking to strengthen them. I was actually joking with one of our pastors this week talking about this passage. I says, thank God I finally get to preach an encouraging passage. We're going through James. I feel like I've been beating y'all up every week for the last two months. But this passage is meant to be encouraging. It is meant to be strengthening. And notice how last week he talks about the day of judgment as a warning for the oppressor. But he talks about the day that Jesus returns as encouragement for the believer. That same event, the second coming of Christ, will be the ultimate hope and blessing and encouragement for the believer, but the day of reckoning and judgment for those who have rejected God and have rejected Christ. What James is trying to teach us here is how we should respond when suffering comes in our lives. I think he gives us five things that we need to see here about when suffering comes. So first of all, church, when suffering comes, be patient. When suffering comes, be patient. Verse seven says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Let's be real this morning, church. Patience is not our favorite virtue. We're not patient and we don't want to be patient because that takes too long, right? You know the fruit of the spirit, don't you? Love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. As we go through those, we think, okay, more love would be awesome. Yes, Lord, I want to be more a more loving person. More joy, I'll take it. I want more joy in my life. More peace instead of chaos and craziness. Absolutely, I want more peace. Patience, uh, let's, let's keep going. We'll skip over that one. We live in an instant gratification society. You go to the drive-thru, if it takes longer than five minutes, you're ready to talk to a manager. You know, you get in the grocery checkout line, if there's two carts, you keep looking. We are not patient, unless you think you're patient, let me prove you wrong real quick, Gloucester person, with two words, Coleman Bridge. (laughs) How many of y'all, you're driving to work, you're already running late on a Monday morning, you're pulling up to the Coleman Bridge, you're going through Gloucester Point, and you see those dreaded words on the sign, draw open. In that moment, do you crank up Caleb and start praising Jesus that he's given you a chance to practice your patience? Of course not. We see that and we get angry because we are being inconvenienced. Church, the reality is we struggle with patience and how much more so when we're suffering? How much more so when we're in a trial? Because in the trial, we say, God, why aren't you fixing this? 
God, why can't you fix this problem now? Why can't you heal me now? Why can't you bring about justice now? Why can't you move me on from this situation now? And James is saying, be patient, therefore, brothers. What does it mean for us to be patient as believers? It's a heart posture that is willing to wait on the Lord while trusting that he will fulfill his promises in his timing. It is a heart that is willing to wait. And here's the thing that we have to remember, church. We're not waiting on God to work, but God is working while we're waiting. God uses the very waiting itself, the very patience itself to conform us to the image of Jesus. Paul Tripp put it this way. He said, waiting is not just about what you will get at the end of the wait. Waiting is about what you will become as you wait. God is using even the seasons of waiting in our lives that are driving us crazy to make us more like Jesus. But what are we to wait for? What does James tell us to be patient until? He says, be patient until the coming of the Lord. Church, this is a reference to the second coming of Jesus. And if you're new to church world, let me explain what I mean by that. Jesus Christ is the son of God who took upon himself human flesh and entered into this world. That's what we call the first coming of Jesus. We celebrate that at Christmas, that Jesus came into this world. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross for our sins. He rose bodily from the dead three days later. And then he ascended into heaven where he is currently at the right hand of the father. But the Bible also teaches that one day Jesus is going to come again. This is called the second coming. And at the second coming, Jesus is going to judge the earth and he will establish his kingdom and everything wrong will be made right. That is the second coming. And James is saying, be patient therefore brothers until that day, until the day that Jesus returns. Let's take a rabbit trail for a few minutes. Let's chat about the second coming of Jesus because I think this is something that we often neglect to our own peril. First of all, we should look forward to the second coming of Jesus. Amen? We should be excited about the second coming. The second coming of Jesus is, as, uh, Sam, as Sam Wise Ganji in Lord of the Rings puts it, it's when everything sad comes untrue. You guys know in Lord of the Rings, after Frodo and Sam destroy the ring and Sam wakes up in Rivendell and he sees Gandalf and he says, is it over? Is everything sad now going to come untrue? It's one of my favorite lines in all of literature. Listen, the day that Jesus returns, everything sad will come untrue. Jesus is coming and he's going to make everything right again, the way that God always intended it to be. It will be a world with no more sin, no more death, no more war, no more sickness, and a new heavens and a new earth. We should be excited for that, church. Titus 2.13 calls the return of Jesus our blessed hope. And now listen, there's a question that I get from time to time. Usually during a, a crazy world event or like COVID or things like that, people will ask, hey, do you think we're in the end times? And I have the same answer for every time people ask me that question. Are we in the end times? Here's my answer. I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. You know why? Because that's our blessed hope because the return of Jesus is what we should long for. That is the moment that he returns and he makes everything right again. And listen, the Bible teaches that the return of Jesus is imminent. It could happen at any moment. I mean, consider this text with me. 
James, writing nearly 2,000 years ago, says things like the judge is standing at the door. He says the Lord is at hand. This is language that suggests nearness. But hold on a minute, Nate. This is like 2,000 years ago, and he's saying it's near, and you're saying it's near. What do we mean by that? It's near in the sense that it is the next event in the history of salvation that is to come. And it is near because God does not operate according to our timetable. Scripture says that a day is as a thousand years with the Lord and a thousand years is as a day. So for all we know, Jesus could come back before I finish this sermon, or he could come back 10,000 years from now. We don't know. And here's the reality. We don't need to know because our job stays the same. We have been given a job, church. We've been given the great commission to go and to make disciples of all nations. Our job is to be found faithful when he comes, whenever he comes, because that's God's business. Lastly, why does the Bible talk so much about the second coming? I mean, James mentions it three times in these five verses. There are two reasons why the Bible often brings up the second coming of Jesus. The first is encouragement and suffering encouragement and suffering. It encourages us to know that one day our king is returning and he will make everything right again. But also it is a motivator for obedience. Knowing that Jesus is coming back motivates us to obey him and to serve him well. And too often, I could, this is a confession as a theology nerd, too often when we only talk about the second coming, whether it's speculation about world events or maybe it's theology debate about various aspects of the end times or whatever. Not that there's necessarily anything wrong with that, but the main thing is, the main point that the Bible talks about this is to encourage us and to motivate us. So here's the reality, church. We don't know when Jesus is coming back, but it could happen at any time. Let me ask you this food for thought question. If God told you that Jesus was coming back tomorrow, what would you do the rest of the day today? How would you live the rest of the day today? The reality is he might, so you should live that way every day. We should live our lives with this expectation that we want to be found faithful when Jesus returns. And James goes on to use the illustration of a farmer to talk about this. He says in the rest of verse seven, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. One commentator wrote about this, Jewish farmers would plow and sow in what to us are the autumn months. The early rain would soften the soil. The latter rain would come in early spring, that is February or March, to help mature the harvest. The farmer had to wait many weeks for his seed to produce fruit. And this is what it teaches us about patience. The farmer had to be patient because he can't make the crops grow on his own. He had to wait for the rain and he can't make it rain. He had to wait for God to send the rain in his timing. In the same way, church, we can't control our lives. We can't control our circumstances. We can't control when Jesus is gonna come back, but we have to be patient. We have to wait on the Lord. And as we wait, we trust that even in the trials that we face, God is using them for our good and for his glory. So when suffering comes, church, we have to be patient. But second, we have to stand firm. We have to stand firm. Verse eight says, you also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. When it says establish your hearts, some translations say strengthen your hearts or even stand firm. 
It's this idea that our hearts and minds would be fully grounded in the truth of God's word so that we are able to stand firm in trials and in temptations and be able to stand firm without wavering in our faith. And we do this because the Lord is at hand. He's saying, stand firm because Jesus could come back at any moment. And how foolish would it be if we wavered in our faith a moment before Jesus returns? Think about it this way. Football season's a month away. Not that I'm counting down the days or anything. And imagine if a wide receiver catches a pass and he's wide open and he's running toward the end zone, but he starts to get tired and he falls down at the one yard line. I can't make it. How foolish would that be? In the same way, he's saying Jesus could come back at any moment. So stand firm, keep holding on to your faith, establish your hearts. And you know, Paul connects this idea of establishing our hearts with the second coming in 1 Thessalonians chapter three. He says, now may our God and father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do to you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Paul says, may the Lord establish your hearts James commands us to establish our hearts. This is something both that God does in us and something that we are called to do. We are called to make sure that our hearts are right with God so that we can stand firm amidst the trials and the temptations of this life. But church, here's the reality. Heart work is often hard work. We have to work hard and diligently to make sure that our hearts are in a good place with God. And how do we do that? It's simple, but it's difficult, right? It is consistently spending time with God. It's getting in the word. It's being in prayer. It's coming to corporate worship. It is making sure that we are allowing God to speak to our hearts, to conform us to the image of Christ. That enables us to stand firm in the trials and temptations that we face. So church, when suffering comes, we're patient. We stand firm. But next, Pastor James tells us, we don't complain, Don't complain. Now, I love that because often when we're suffering, we think that's our time to complain. We think that our suffering justifies our complaining. Well, if you knew what I was going through, then you'd understand why I react this way. But Pastor James is not gonna let us off the hook there. This is what he says in verse nine. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. This is a major temptation in our lives to complain about God, to complain about others, to complain about our circumstances, especially when we're suffering. That becomes a temptation in our lives. And you know, there's a verse that my mom used to quote all the time growing up whenever I'd argue with my sisters. Philippians chapter two, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Can't it say some things, Paul? Why does it have to be all things? Can I complain a little bit? No. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. He's saying, we don't complain. We don't complain against God because we trust in his will. We trust in his providence. 
We don't complain against others because they're not the enemy. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We don't complain about our circumstances because they're all in God's hands. And when we complain about our circumstances, we're telling God that he's got it wrong. We're telling God that he's not doing a good job of running his world when we complain about our circumstances. So as believers in Christ, we don't complain. And why do we not complain? What reason does James give us? Are you seeing a pattern here? He says, because the judge is standing at the door. We don't complain because Jesus is coming back. Have you ever thought that way? And it's new for me. You know, I shouldn't complain about this because what if Jesus comes back and finds me complaining? That's the logic he's using here. Don't complain that you may not be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Think about it this way. When y'all were in school growing up, or if you're in school now, what happens when the teacher leaves the room? Oh, you know what breaks loose, right? It's chaos when the teacher leaves the room. You're dancing on the desk. You're making paper airplanes and throwing them. You're yelling and screaming and acting like fools. But then what happens when you hear the footsteps coming? All of a sudden, everything gets straightened out. You know, you sit down in your desk, you look down, you pretend like you were studying the whole time. So when the teacher comes back, they think that you were being good the whole time. What made the kids straighten out? Hearing the footsteps, the teacher's coming. In the same way, why don't we complain against one another? Because the king is coming. Because Jesus is coming, he's so close we can hear his footsteps. That ought to motivate us toward obedience in our lives. So when suffering comes, church, we're patient. We stand firm. We don't complain. Next, we remain steadfast. When suffering comes, we remain steadfast. Look at verses 10 and 11 with me. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So James gives us here two examples of suffering and of patience. And he says in the middle, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. The first example of steadfastness are the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. If you've read your Old Testament, you know that being a prophet was not a great gig. I mean, God would send you on these missions to say these difficult things, and most of the time it didn't go well. Ask Elijah. He had his great mountaintop experience where he defeats these prophets of Baal, and the next day he finds out that Jezebel's trying to kill him and he has to run away. Think about Jeremiah before the exile. He is preaching the truth to Judah about their idolatry and about why they're going into exile. They end up throwing him in a cistern. He goes into prison without any food. What about Isaiah? In Isaiah's very commission, in his call to ministry, God tells him, go and preach to these people who aren't going to listen to you. And then what happens at the end of his life? His church tradition tells us he was sawed in half. These prophets spoke in the name of the Lord, and we consider them blessed because they remained steadfast in their faith. But he gives us another example. What about Job? He says, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job. The book of Job is, is such a, a powerful, mysterious book, right in the middle of the Bible, isn't it? You know the story of Job? Job was a very moral, godly, upright man, Scripture teaches us. He was very wealthy, and he had a very large family. 
And one day Satan comes into the throne room of God and makes the accusation to God. The only reason he's faithful is because you're spoiling him, God. If you took away all of his blessings, all of his wealth, all of his family, surely he would curse you. And God says, okay, take away his family, take away his possessions. He did that. And what does Job say? He says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all these things, Job did not sin with his mouth. So in the next chapter, when, uh, when, he should have, when Satan should have apologized and God could have gotten in a good, I told you so, Satan keeps going, he doubles down. He says, well, I haven't gotten his health yet. Let me take away his health, then surely he will curse you. And God says, okay, just don't kill him. So he gives them this horrible disease that brings him to death's doorstep. And now even Job's wife is saying, curse God and die. But Job won't do it. He remains steadfast in his faith. And now let's be clear, as you keep reading in Job for like 35 chapters of dialogue between Job and his friends, Job does not always wait well. It gets dark. It gets really dark in the book of Job. He curses the day he was born. I mean, it gets really dark, but even in the midst of his pain and his complaining and all of that, Job still clings to his faith. He still wants to see God. He runs toward God in his pain, not away from God. James goes on to tell us about Job. It says, you have seen the steadfastness of Job and you have seen the purpose of the Lord that is in Job's life, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. We see God's purposes in Job's life and we see a display of God's compassion and mercy in Job's life. And how is that? Well, once we get to chapter 38, we get some of the most just incredible, breathtaking depictions of the glory and the majesty of God. And in four chapters, here's what's interesting. God never tells Job why. He never tells him about the conversation with Satan. He never tells Job why he allowed this suffering to take place. But he does something so much better than that. He reveals who he is. God reveals his character to Job. And that caused Job to fall on his face in repentance and in worship. And then in the final grand act of the book of Job, God displays his compassion and his mercy. How does he do that? Look with me at Job chapter 42. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, a thousand yoke of oxen, a thousand female donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of his first daughter, Jemima, and the name of the second daughter, Keziah, and the name of the third, Karen Hapuk. And in all the land, there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his son's sons four generations. And Job died an old man full of days. Doesn't God write the best stories? God is in the restoration business, church. He brings restoration. 
He restored Job after this season of suffering and God restores us after we suffer. Now to be clear, not always in the same way. It will not always be in this life, but it will most certainly be in the next for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let me be clear about this. And we learn this from the book of Job. This is so important as we're talking about suffering. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. He is sovereign over our suffering. He is sovereign over every moment of it. Everything that Satan did, he could only do by God's permission, we see in the book of Job. One commentator put it this way. When you find yourself in the fire, remember that God keeps his gracious hand on the thermostat. Church, God is sovereign. Why is that comforting and suffering? Because it teaches us that God is using each and every moment of our suffering to conform us to the image of Christ, that he is using it to strengthen our faith. He's using it to make our lives into a testimony of his grace. And he has promised that he will work it all together for our good and for his glory. So when suffering comes, we remain steadfast. Final thing that James teaches us is that when suffering comes, we don't swear Verse 12 says, but above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any oath, but let your yes be yes and let your no be no so that you may not fall under condemnation. Now, this verse almost seems out of place to me uh, as I've studied this in the flow of this text. I'm like, what does swearing have to do with anything? But James, it's a big deal, right? He says, but above all, do not swear. Here's what I think the connection is here. When we are going through a trial, it can tempt us to take shortcuts in our speech. Perhaps in a culture where oath-taking was quite normal, that could be seen as a shortcut, as a way to get out of a bad situation. And by the way, in this culture, oath-taking to confirm the accuracy of what you were saying was pretty normal, and it was getting downright silly. So Jesus tells us in the book of Matthew that the Pharisees would say things like this. Well, if you swear by the temple, it's not that big a deal. But if you swear by the gold of the temple, you gotta do what you said. If you swear by the altar, that's whatever. But if you swear by the gift on the altar, you see where this is going? It reminds me of when kids are arguing. I dare you. Oh yeah? I double dare you. I triple dog dare you. Well, I triple dog dare you times infinity. Like you see, that's the pettiness of what's going on here with this oath taking. And here's the point that James is making. He's saying, just be honest. Just be reliable. Just be a person of integrity so that none of that nonsense is necessary to get people to listen to you. What James is saying here is almost verbatim what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter five, Jesus said, Again, you have heard it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. 
When he says, do not swear, I don't think he's talking about four-letter words, and I don't think he's talking about any and every kind of oath-taking. In other words, I don't think it's a sin for a Christian to take an oath in a court of law before testifying, for example. What he's talking about here are rashly taken oaths in our personal conversations with others to try to guarantee the accuracy of what we're saying. He's saying you shouldn't have to do that. You shouldn't have to go to lengths to make people believe you. You should be such a person of honesty and integrity and character and reliability that people will believe you. Be a man or a woman of your word is what he's saying here. This is the principle here. So let me ask you this question. Are you reliable? Do people question or second guess when you speak if you're really telling the truth? As Christians, we need to be people of integrity and even more so when we're walking through a trial because perhaps that can add to the temptation to try to take shortcuts in the way that we speak. So as we wrap up this morning, I wanna return just briefly in the last five minutes or so to meditate on the second half of verse 11, one of my favorite parts of this text where it says, you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Ultimately, church, I think that's the key. How do we keep going in trials? How do we keep going when we're suffering? How can we endure suffering in our lives as Christians? We have to know the purpose of the Lord. We have to know that the Lord is compassionate and merciful. In other words, we have to lean into God's character and we have to lean into God's purposes. First of all, we lean into God's purposes. Church, this passage shows us that God is compassionate and merciful. And when we're suffering, when we're facing a trial, when we're grieving, it can become very easy for us to doubt that. It can become easy for us to doubt that God is compassionate and merciful. When C.S. Lewis lost his wife, he said, I don't fear ceasing to believe in God. I fear the things that I'm starting to believe about God. Suffering can tempt us to doubt his love, to doubt his mercy, to begin to think that he has abandoned us. That's where Job was for all those chapters. God, where are you? Are you still compassionate? Are you still merciful? And church, in those moments when you're in a place of suffering, let me encourage you. If you want to know that God is compassionate and merciful, don't look to your feelings. Look to the cross. Look to the cross. That is the one place where God once and for all proved that he is a God of compassion and that he is a God of mercy when he sent his son to die in our place. You know, we've talked about Job in this sermon and we see in the Old Testament that Job is a picture of an innocent sufferer. But even Job, though he was blameless in that situation and a godly man, Job was still a sinner. But Jesus is the true innocent sufferer, the one who is sinless, the one who is the son of God, and yet he suffered. And though Job had to bear for a short time the wrath of Satan as God allowed, Jesus on the cross bore the infinite wrath of God on behalf of the sins of his people. Though Job was brought to the point of death, he was brought near death in his suffering. Jesus was obedient to the point of death, even a grueling death on the cross. Jesus is the true innocent sufferer that Job could only foreshadow. 
And in Jesus Christ, we have definitive proof that our God is compassionate, that our God is merciful, that our God loves us, that he will never abandon us in the midst of our suffering. If God did not withhold his only son whom he loved from us, how much more will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Church, God proved beyond the shadow of a doubt on the cross how much he loves you, how compassionate he is, how merciful he is. So if you are suffering this morning, if you are walking through a trial this morning, lean into the character of God. Trust in God. Let a view of God's majesty take your breath away and leave you on your face as it did with Job. When you are suffering, you don't need to know why. You need to know who. You need to know who God is. You need to know his character and trust in it. The Lord is compassionate and merciful. God proved it the first time when Jesus went to the cross for you, and he will prove it a second time when he returns with a crown for you. So trust in the character of God. But next, church, trust in the purposes of God. We have seen the purpose of the Lord. Trust in the purposes of God. We don't know why God does what he does. We don't know why God allows these things to happen, these tragedies to happen. We don't know why. God often does not answer that question, but what he gives us is so much better. He gives us himself. And he shows us that his plans are more amazing than we could ever imagine. And, you know, scripture says that the sufferings of this life are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed. Second Corinthians says it is a light and momentary affliction that is producing in us an eternal weight of glory. God is not wasting one tear. God is not wasting one moment of your suffering, but he is weaving all of it together into this beautiful symphony that will eternally display the radiance of his glory. Think about it this way. If you were to go and see a composer who is working on a symphony, you might hear this one chord by itself. And it's a minor chord and it's dissonant and it sounds ugly to you. And you think, why would you play that chord? Why would you use that? That does not sound right at all. And you come back weeks later and you enter into the concert hall and the orchestra is there and they're playing this incredible symphony. And right in the middle of it, you hear that chord that chord you hated, and you think, now I get it. Now I can see how this one chord fits into the larger whole and is an integral part of how it all comes together. That's an imperfect illustration of how you will view your suffering one day from the perspective of glory. Every moment of it was in God's control. He had a plan and a purpose for all of it. And he is weaving every bit of it together for his glory. Do you have the faith to believe that this morning? The faith to believe that God's purposes, God's plans are perfect, that God is infinite in wisdom, and that he is sovereign even over our suffering, and that Romans 8.28 is still true, that he is working all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. We need to just attune our ears to listen to the symphony that God is composing all around us. So church, with that, I'm gonna invite the worship team to come back now. I'm gonna invite the prayer team to come now because listen, in a sermon where we talk about suffering, I know that for many of you in this room, this is not theoretical. This is not abstract, but you're living this. You're walking through a trial you're grieving a loss, 
you are suffering. We have prayer team members here who are here to bear that burden with you, who are here to pray with you and encourage you. So I'd invite you, if you have a prayer need during this last song, come and let us pray with you. So church, let's close now in prayer. We'll go out singing this morning. Father in heaven, we don't always know why we walk through trials. We don't know why suffering comes in our lives, but we know who you are. We know that you're good. We know that you're wise. We know that you are compassionate and merciful, and we know that your purposes will always stand. So Father, give us the faith to believe you, the faith to trust you in those moments. Let that faith, Lord, make us patient and steadfast. Oh, and Lord, how we long for the day of your return. Lord, how we long, Jesus, to see you face to face, the day when our prayer will be turned to praise and our faith will be turned to sight. Lord, we long for that day above all else. So until that day, Lord, help us to be found faithful. Help us to be obedient. Help us to be patient and to honor you in our lives. God, we love you. We ask that you would be honored in our lives today. Bless us as we go. In Jesus' name, amen.